Hello, hello, peace lovers and peacemakers. This is Sarah Jamshidi with Matin Rokhsefat. Welcome to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. So I hope that you've been hearing and listening and watching our show. You know that every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Standard Time, it's going to be 3 p.m. in New York and 2 p.m. in Texas, Austin, where our guest is located. So we come here to talk about talk about peace, talk about kindness, compassion, and talk about how these peaceful bridge makers really taking stage to make the world a better place. And for that matter, I am here with Matin. So Matin is with me, and Hello, Matin. Everyone. Hello, hello is going to take over and, and start the program. Yes, Matinja. Hi, everyone. I'm Matin Raksafat, and we are live streaming our show on many social media channels, including Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. If you happen to join our conversation on Facebook or other social media channels, please make sure to share our video on your timeline. We really appreciate it. Also, if you have any questions or comments, Please write to us. Sarah is now on the other line to take your questions and she will let me know. In the past four years, we have seen the U.S. administration make many cuts to its refugee program and adopt many controversial and harsh measures in its immigration and refugee policies. In fact, in the past four years, the USA significantly diminished its role as a haven for people in need. And today is, of course, is the much-awaited election day, and we really hope that everyone has cast their vote or you plan to cast a very, very last-minute vote. Please do so and make your voice heard. Our guest today is writer and activist Jessica Goudeau. She's the author of After the Last Border, Two Families, and the Story of Refuge in America. In this book, Jessica paints the story of two refugee women, Muna and Hasna, and their families, and she shows how much things have changed in a very short time for refugees arriving in the United States. Thank you for joining us, Jessica. I am so excited to be here with you today. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Jessica, as an activist, your book, After the Last Border, is trying to draw the attention to the ongoing refugee policy changes in the U.S. by telling the story of these two real refugee women, Mona and Hasna, and their trauma of living through war, and now they have to deal with the difficult aspects of refugee resettlement. Can you please tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, so um, the Federal Refugee Resettlement Program began in 1980 when it passed, it was an act that passed the Senate unanimously. And so in my research, one of the things that I learned is that the United States has resettled tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people peacefully until about the last four or five years. And things have really shifted, um, not just with this administration, but there was a real rhetorical shift right around 2015 when all of a sudden people began to turn against refugees. And so in this book, I wanted to show the story of Muna, who arrived in 2007, and what refugee resettlement was like for her. It was not this, you know, big, everything was always wonderful. We always think about resettlement as kind of like the end of the story, right? Like she's saved and everybody's fine. And then all of a sudden they have a new house and it's great. And those of us who have worked with refugees know that this is a really complicated process. So I began a story about Muna who arrived from Myanmar in 2007 and wanted to show what really happened. And then I wanted to talk about Hasna who arrived in 2016 and had a very different experience when she came from Syria. 
Right. Yes, that's true. So your book also revisits the refugee, uh, just sort of backtracking, it revisits the refugee resettlement after the World War II and also describes this program after the Cold War. Uh, You did a really great job of weaving the story of these two women um, and and also giving a historiography of the refugee resettlement program in the U.S. So can you explain to our viewers the refugee situation after these two important periods in the U.S., after World War II, how it was different to the Cold War? Yeah, so um, World War II really shifted. So before that, I think you have to understand that there was a time of real xenophobia and isolationism that we had never experienced or hadn't experienced on that scale. So 1920s and 30s, we sent several people away. In fact, there are several famous examples, including one in which we sent a boatload of people back into the Holocaust and hundreds of them died. And so um, there was a real reckoning that happened after World War II when the United States made some very swift policy changes in the about six years, we went from having very closed borders and language at a national level that was based on like, we don't want these people here basically, to a shift in which we were leading the, the world in helping to reimagine and resettle refugees. Now, there are a lot of problems that came about then, but beginning there, it was really kind of a, a, the first big shift that happened in which we identified refugees as being a unique group of people in need of resettlement. And then the 1950s, when we kind of, 1960s move into the Cold War, the United States was making a lot of arguments to itself about what was superior about U.S. culture and history. And part of what we wanted to say is that capitalism was better than communism. So we spent a great deal of time focused on uh, anti-Soviet, anti-communist refugees and ignored several other major humanitarian crises around the world. And so a lot of that was shifted in the later years as people began to say, we need to offer resettlement to anyone who's in need and anyone who fits the definitions that we put into place after World War II. Yeah, yeah, that's true. There's a lot of changes. I mean, that the US went through different yeah, changes yeah. throughout each event that happened in, you know, in, their, in the history. So you also argue in the book that just uh, up until recently, every presidential administration, U.S. presidential administration, whether they're Democratic or Republican, it doesn't matter. They supported the refugee program as a central, unquestioned part of their foreign policy stance. Uh, so what was so different with this administration, this past administration? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I think that people often don't think about is that, you know, they always have the sense like things have always been this way. In fact, early on, it was the Democrats who were pretty anti-refugee in the 1920s, 30s, 40s. When we get to the 1980s and later, um, some of the highest rates of resettlement we see under Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush. And so I think what shifted was when there were just several factors that kind of came together. And I also think that people, there was kind of a great deal of ignorance about what it actually means to be a refugee. I think there had been such broad bipartisan support. It's a, one of the few places where the federal government partners incredibly well with private uh, groups and private citizens. People of most, almost every faith that you can imagine are involved in this. And so it was just kind of this beautiful coalition of people doing something quietly as they were helping to resettle refugees who needed a place to stay. And less than 1% of the people in the world end up receiving resettlement, but those Um, that minuscule few who are able to come enjoyed this beautiful program. And I think there just wasn't a lot of information about it. And so when people began saying, 
I think that those are terrorists or I think that people are coming to our country to hurt us. It was exactly the opposite of what was happening. These are the victims of persecution and not the terrorists themselves, right? Of course, it's a very deep, there's a deep national security process that all refugees have to go through, but I think people just didn't know. And so we, uh, the Great Settlement Resettlement Program was really susceptible to a lot of those um, questions and began to kind of to sink under the weight of that, yeah. Yeah, so they sort of played on the fears of the people and uh, depicted these refugees who really needed refuge as terrorists and people they should worry about. Yeah, and I think it really boils down to a lot of this had been brewing since 2001. And so yeah. I think a lot of these views have been coming and they happened to hit. It was a time when a lot of um, anti-Muslim views and by people who look like me, which is an absolute shame, and it hit a lot of the kind of xenophobia that was happening in Texas on the border. And so there were just, it's just like a big mismatch of hatred kind of all combined in this way that really has nothing to do with refugee resettlement and everything to do with our own misinformation and misguided fears of people. Yes, and, and you know, I think it really coincided with all the things that were happening in around the world, you know, in yeah. Myanmar and, and the Arab Spring in Syria and, and all the displacements of these these people. So it was just, that at the same these coincidences at the same time happening um, which made it really unfortunate for these people that was a perfect um, storm wasn't it yes yeah, yeah exactly so uh you also point uh to the fact that when it comes to the issue of immigration just the, the whole area of immigration is really not under the u.s president's focus only when it comes to the refugee resettlement program that is really under his is the direct right. uh, focus of the u.s president why is that why has, why has that, it was it always like this or has it changed recently and why? No, it's always been like this. And this was something that I found that, that was so fascinating to me. Again, I'm not a policy person. I'm someone who came to this, I have a PhD in literature. And so I came to this as a storyteller and as a listener and um, through my recent, as a researcher and through my research, I realized that refugee resettlement was uniquely susceptible to a president like this because in 1980, when they set the Refugee Act, the executive branch gets to set the number of uh, refugees that are allowed. So we call it, there's a presidential determination that happens every September. It's, supp it's supposed to happen every September before October 1st. And what's supposed to happen and what has happened for almost 40 years is in consultation with Congress, the executive branch says, we think that we're going to allow this many refugees to come. Congress says, that sounds great. And together, they set a ceiling of we're going to allow up to 95 or up to 125,000, up to over 200,000, which it has often been. And so what happened was because they um, were trying to make the two branches work together, they created a situation in which the executive branch is actually able to bring it down as low as possible. And no one ever really foresaw a day when a president would be so anti-refugee. And so this was one of the unique areas in which this administration has really been able to enact its xenophobic mm -hmm. um, policies. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, uh, it's which is really unfortunate. Yeah. So I wanted to know uh, more about Mona and Hasna, and you were explaining how they, they both arrived in different times to the U.S. I think Mona was in 2007, mm -hmm. and Hasna was during actually the, this administration. Mm -hmm. So can you explain a little, bit, a little bit about how different their resettlement and their process was? 
Yeah. When I was when I was picking these, I was I interviewed several people before choosing these two women to be the women I wrote the book about. And part of why I wanted to do this is because they had very different situations. Um, Muna arrived in 2007. She had been in a camp in Thailand for mu much of her life, if not most of it. Um, the average weight for people right now who live in these protracted refugee situations in which they're living in camps is 27 years. And so Muna came over to the United States and it was the first time that she had been in an apartment herself. It was, um, there are so many complicated things that they had to learn about the language and about the culture and about finding jobs. And it was a very difficult process, but it was also a time of real empowerment for her and learning who she was and how smart she was and how her grit and hard work could really help her family. And so I wanted to show in those stories who we were under uh, originally, who we were before under all of these other presidents and what refugee resettlement was. And then Hasna and her family came out of the Syrian war. Um, the, the war in Syria began in their hometown of Dara, and her neighbor's children were the very first people that were affected when the Syrian regime came down hard against some of the original protesters. And so I wanted to talk about what it was like for people who were, who were absolutely in need of immediate assistance who could not have imagined even a few years before that they would end up in the United States and that everything that they loved in Syria would be destroyed. And who also had a very different experience because they are Muslim and because they are Syrian and because there's been such a worldwide backlash against Syrians. And part of what I wanted to show is who we've become. And I really want this book to beg the question, is this who we want to be as a country? Yes, you, you do talk about that, you, you know, really, this is at the core, at the at the core of the soul of the U.S. You know this uh, this yeah. issue of the refugees. You also talk in the book, you know, after the last border, that it's really important to hide the identity of the refugees that you're you know mm -hmm. you're talking about, and even though they're they are in the U.S. right now. So can you explain to our viewers why it's important to hide to, even to hide their identity even now, and you know the names are changed and. Um, yeah, everyone associated with this book. I had a group of people from Syria who read the book and who kind of gave me a lot of the, made sure I was, I've never been to Syria, so they made sure I was um, representing the country well, culturally and in terms of food and language and all of that. And not a single one of them wanted their names to be used. And so um, there is nothing I would prefer more than to not be in this conversation at all. I have been a longtime friend and advocate for refugees I have a doctorate that focuses on issues of representation, and I know how often white women have appropriated the stories of white people in general, but often white women have appropriated the stories of others. And so I am a reluctant mediator in this space, but I realized that there are so many incredible books written by and about former refugees, uh, many of which are included in the further resources at the end of my book. But what I wanted to do as someone who knows these two women in particular and several others, I wanted to bring some of the stories of people who are caught up in current um, policies, but who couldn't reveal their names or their details because their friends and families and loved ones are still in danger. And so um, for Muna, that's people, she still has family members that live in Myanmar. And many of us have seen, even if it's not always making the news, what's happening to Rohingya people in Myanmar right now is they're being actively persecuted. And there's still active persecution of Karen people, which is her uh, group. And there are several others. And that's currently happening. And in Syria, I've adopted a measure of 
paranoia and fear. I don't think it's paranoia, but deep fear that people have there. My greatest fear is that I would put someone in danger by helping to tell their story. And so these interviews took place over two years. We met every two weeks. The women had complete control over their stories. Some of the very best details got left out because we wanted to make sure that we didn't reveal anyone's location or, you know, put anything in there that would make someone go, oh, I know who that is. And so that was part of what I was able to do. I talk about this in the afterward of hiding what needed to be hidden, but bringing forward the truth of what needs to be told now. We can't wait. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's really unfortunate that mm -hmm. they still have to live in fear, even though they are they should be in safety and security here in the United States. Yep. So Jessica, you described that unfortunately with the pandemic uh, happening now and the economic downturn, these things have really exasperated the refugees' really already tough situation. Uh, can you share some of these examples with us? So many of the former refugees that come, even if they have doctorates, you know, I know several chemistry professors from Iraq or um, medical doctors from the Congo who come over to the United States and very often the only jobs available to them are in the service industry. Many of them are, they work in hotels. That's something that Hasna um, does for a bit in the book. And um, they are often people who are taking jobs that are based their hourly wages and they work, you know, incredibly hard, sometimes in very difficult and complicated situations. Many of the people that I'm friends with, and these are not people that are in the book, have um, worked in food processing plants. And you know, those are close quarters and a lot of, um, and it's very difficult to take time off. A lot of them don't have the kind of medical leave. They can't work from home like many of us have um, been able to do. And so I feel like my former refugee friends have been disproportionately affected by COVID. And so Hasna herself is currently furloughed and is um, struggling to make rent. And is she's, she's doing okay for now. There are several of us here in Austin that really care about her and making sure she's okay. But um, I, I know of just really hundreds of people who, for whom this has been an incredibly difficult situation. And I think what we're often missing is that we often look to former refugees as if they're, you know, poor and sad. And I don't think that that I've never encountered anyone who has just been looking for a handout. Instead, I've only found deeply hardworking, very proud and, and deservedly so, very smart, very resilient people who have overcome so much. And to see them have to overcome yet one more setback is really, it's really been heartbreaking. And also, I found it deeply I hate to use the word inspirational, but I, I continue to find myself overwhelmed by their courage and their faithfulness just to continue to put one foot in front of another. I think they're just doing an extraordinary job in this time. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's really unfortunate because like you say, I mean, um, I'm not a refugee, but, you know, uh, we were immigrants to, to Canada and I, I knew a lot of refugees and even the immigrants, we know how the process is, but it's not, mm -hmm. of course, as tough as refugees. But I can understand where people who are highly educated, who had really high statuses, they had to come and, you know, take any job that's available to them and which are not the jobs that they had back home, you know, being directors and, and doctors and engineers. So to have even, it's like, a, I mean, it's, it's doubly feels offensive to people yeah. that even having those jobs that are not at their level then being affected because of the pandemic mm -hmm. and not being able to uh, pursue those. I want to go back to, again, talking about a little bit about the U.S. policy. So we did just, we touched upon how the increasingly anti-refugee uh, U.S. policy has mm -hmm. been affecting this vulnerable group in the past mm -hmm. four years. So based on your experience as an activist, can you tell us one of, uh, tell us which one of these policies have been 
probably the harshest or the most detrimental to these refugees and why that is? You know, I think it, I'm not sure I could pick one policy. I think it's the capricious nature of these policy changes that feels the cruelest to me. And so, you know, again, I'm friends with people who have lived under some of the most, some of the cruelest governments in the world. And yet what happened on January 27th, 2017, when an executive order came on a Friday in which people were literally in the air on an airplane trying to arrive in the United States and they, their visas were nullified within minutes uh, that's one of the cruelest things that I've ever seen. And so we talk a lot about family separation. And I think that what happened at the border for children who were separated from their families will go down in our nation's history as one of these moments that we will never get over. And I want to add to that list what has happened, especially to Syrian and Iraqi and Afghanistan, Afghani families and others who are coming from Muslim majority nations. The policies that were blatantly about regionalism or racism or against any particular group of people that separated people. They um, And I, I don't want to give the ending of my book away too much, but it was a stunning blow to Hasna and to her family after all of the things that they had been through and endured and all of the strategizing they had done in order to be together. The United States has always offered family reunification as a core part of our resettlement program because we believe families should be able to be together. And it just seems like such a basic human right for that to be in question right now. It's that, it's the, the ability to, to target these things that feel the most basic and to do them within a day, to make changes that are so fast, they go against you know decades of foreign policy and promises that we have made to other people. And I just think looking at that, it's hard for me not to think how cruel it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mateen and I discussed that how we are going to uh, basically manage this show and with your permission Mateen John I'm just going to go into the intro but before before I do so I was just this burning question Jessica why did you decided to work on this particular issue because I've been friends with refugees since I first met Muna and others, and because this feels deeply personal to me. So mm-hmm. these are these are people that I love. It is not something that is affecting me, but because it affects people I love, I can't help but feel like that's I'll, I'll do anything that I possibly can do. And this is one thing that I felt like I could do. Excellent. So you so wanted good. to tell the story of your friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, this is about friendship. Yeah. Excellent. So I'm going to go to the mid program. Stay, stay put, please. You are watching to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers and peaceful that is. Uh, Jessica Goodall is the author of After the Last Border. So depicting two individuals who has gone through horrendous experiences to come into safety and now they have to deal with certain issues. You know, if you are watching to uh, our show, you know that we are live streaming our program every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Standard Time. And the first program started on September 1st. The last program is going to be November 24. So for the next episode, uh, we are talking with Sertash Sehlikoglu. Sertash is the author of Working Out Desire, Women, Sport, and Self-Making in Istanbul. 
conversation with Sertash is going to be very interesting in for one particular reason, because Sertash studied and researched about ways in which uh, women in Turkey and perhaps in the Middle East and uh, in the Muslim nations are paying attention to personal desire. And that is something new in the culture that I know very well. So I believe that we are going to have an interesting discussion with Sertash. We, we do know our guests for November 24th. They are two uh, chefs and one of them is author. So we are very excited about that program. November 24th is close to the Thanksgiving day. And in the United States, Thanksgiving is the day. <laughs> And it's the basically two, three days. It's the days of a feast and eating and celebrating with family. It's pandemic. And I just uh, honestly don't know exactly how everything is going to turn out. But for us, it still is the spirit of Thanksgiving and we are going to celebrate food. For that matter, Elena Razenbush, a nutritionist and food recipe developer, is going to be our guest to talk about how to think about uh, the turkey that we, we perhaps decide to cook for for Thanksgiving. And Kathleen Lafond is the author of Season with Gratitude, 200 Recipes and Blessings Celebrating the Greater Nourishment of Real Food. So on that day, we are going to talk about food and Thanksgiving and nutrition and blessings. So perhaps I know Kathleen is so big in the blessing and prayers and all of those. So it's going to be thanking God for giving us and about blessing and about food and uh, and and I'm super excited about that. I hope Martin and you are also excited. And for this hour, we are talking with Jessica Goudeau and Martin is managing all of those on the other end. And here you go. It's Martin. Yes, go ahead. Uh, thank you, Sarah. So you're listening to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. We're live, live streaming our conversation here on Facebook, YouTube, and Periscope, and many other social media channels. Uh, and later, we will post uh, our show on 11 podcast channels. We are taking your questions and comments here on our live social media conversation. Please write to us on Facebook. This hour, we are talking to Jessica Goudeau, an activist and the author of After the Last Border, Two Families and the Story of Refuge in America. Jessica Goudeau has written for The Atlantic, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and Teen Vogue, among other places. And she is a former columnist for Catapult. She produced projects for Teen Vogue, Ask a Syrian Girl, and A Line Birds Cannot See, a documentary about a young girl who crossed the border into the U.S. on her own. She has a Ph.D. in literature from the University of Texas and served as a Mellon, Mellon Writing Fellow and Interim Writing Center Director at Southwestern University. Goudeau has spent more than a decade working with refugees in Austin, Texas, and she's the co-founder of Hill Tribers, a nonprofit that provided supplemental income for Burmese refugee artisans for seven years. First, I want to ask you something about that documentary about the girl who crossed the border. I mean, that's, that seems really fascinating and, and really impressive. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, that was one of my favorite projects I got to work on. So um, the name of the filmmaker that made it is Amy Bench. 
And it was a film that was picked up by the New Yorker. It's a short nine minute documentary and it's animated because the woman who tells her story, we also wanted to protect her identity. So it's actually one of the most beautiful pieces of art I think I've ever been able to be a part of. And I was just so incredibly thrilled that Amy um, asked me to come join them. And this woman, young woman, she goes by the initials EL in the story, tells the story of what would happen when she was separated from her family and actually making it across the border and trying to find her mom. And I will tell you, it is um, both gut-wrenching and also heartwarming. It's it's really just beautifully done. And this is, she is one of the strongest women that I know. She remains a friend to this day. I think this is kind of a, I'm, I'm not a journalist. I tend to come to these um, these interviews and conversations more as a friend. And then I just stay in the lives of a lot of these people. And um, EL is one of them. I'm just so incredibly grateful to her for sharing her story and really telling us what it means to be a DACA recipient. Yeah. One of the, the worst aspects of this, the refugee program that's happened was the separation of the families yeah. and, 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 you know, the, the, the fate of the DACA, the DACA kids. So she's, she's one of those people. I mean, she, right. Okay. Yeah, not not in the same way that the children were actively separated from the border as a right. as a part of policy, but just recognizing that many yeah. people have been separated, and especially in the last few years, that family separation is something that this administration is really okay with, and actually mm -hmm. kind of pushing towards, and how how heartbreaking that is, and what happens yeah. to people when that happens. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's that's really unfortunate. We, I want to know if, um, are you still in contact with Muna and Hasna? And I know we don't want to give the, the ending of the of the story, but you know, just how are they doing? And have, has Hasna been able to reunite with her family or we keep that under the wraps? So um, I, I'm in constant contact with both of them. Muna and I um, have been friends for over a decade and I can only imagine that we're going to be friends for life. Our kids are close with one another and we have known each other for a very long time. And so I talk to her very often and she's doing beautifully. They um, are, I, I have often said it like wherever they are at the end of the book, they're pretty much in the same place now. So um, Muna is still in the same job that she had and she loves it and she has been promoted. She's doing excellent work there and she and her family continue to thrive. Her very smart daughters are preparing for college and her son who's younger is not there yet, but they just continue to do incredibly well here in the United States. Um, and so I, it's not going to give a lot of the book away to say that Hasna was caught up in the policies and was unable to be with her family. And that has um, largely remained unchanged. So in the book, one of her daughters, and I don't want to give too much of that away, is in a place of um, real danger. And that danger has dissipated to a small degree. And so just that little bit of relief is slightly helpful but for the most part, Hasna remains in the same place that she has been. Um, they still live their lives watching what's happening in Syria because that feels significantly more pressing, I think, in a lot of ways than what's happening here in the U.S. My heart has been really heavy. Today is Election Day, and I can't help but think of Hasna because um, what's going to happen in the United States really might make a difference in whether or not she's able to be reunited with her family. And so and on behalf of Hasna and so many other people, I just kind of carry that weight with me today. Yes, I know. I mean, this day is is such a deciding factor for everyone, yeah. but specifically for these refugees that you're that you know their life is so caught up with them, and and uh, it affects everyone, but especially these people. I have another question about something that you you 
you mentioned that you said that you were really surprised that both Myanmar and Syria were part of the banned list of, yeah. of countries that were on the banned list. And, you know, I understand with Syria because, you know, it was a Muslim ban, you know, they, however they wanted to twist it and they added Venezuela and, and North Korea after a while so that it's not a Muslim ban, but we, we know that that's what it is. But uh, so Syria was understandable, but you were also surprised that Myanmar was part of it. Yeah. And because especially yeah. you say that the Burmese resettlement program was something that was really popular and well supported in the U.S. history. So. Yeah. What, why do, was that? I mean, why would Myanmar be part of? I, I'll be honest that I have no idea. And this mm. is one of those things that it remains deeply surprising to me. So, you know, the Burmese resettlement program was one of the largest in history. It, again, started under George W. Bush. Laura Bush was a huge advocate for it. Laura Bush and Condoleezza Rice went at different times to go see what was happening. There was a policy in place that was that was keeping, I don't want to get into all of it, but that was keeping people from places like Myanmar from coming to the United States. And Laura Bush and Condoleezza Rice and several others were incredibly active in making sure that that stipulation was taken down so that people who were in camps could come to the United States and it affected people in Somalia and some other groups around people from Burundi and some other groups that were stuck in camps and had been for years were finally able to come to the United States under George W. Bush. And so there are a lot of things to criticize about the Bush administration. One of the things that I think that they did do was open up the doors for people in these camps and protracted refugee situations where they're stuck to come to the U.S. And so for Myanmar to be added to the list I don't know if it was just like you said to add Venezuela and um, North Korea to kind of make it feel more palatable. I'm not sure why that happened. I do know that there are several families who left their children with grandparents when they fled and then were finally petitioning for their kids to come over and their kids have not been able to join them. And I know, again, these are people that I know personally. Um, I'm not sure really ever what happens um, when some of these policies shift. I, I think trying to understand that. I'm sure that there are policy people that can tell you the reasoning behind it. But from my vantage point, it just looks like an extra layer of capriciousness. Um, I have more questions. I mean, I really have a lot. But I just, uh, before we run out of time, I really want yeah. us, I want to know how, why it's so important to read uh, after the last order. Um, can you just yeah. tell us? Um, you know, I think we often think about refugee resettlement as something that happened or we kind of vaguely know what's happening. Um, I think that what has happened in the last four years has brought this resettlement program to the edge of collapse in ways that we can't begin to understand. I mean, I've part of what I ended up showing in this book, I didn't even realize the extent of it until I began the research. And I just want us to understand why refugee resettlement is such a core part of who we are in the United States, what it means to people around the United States. I don't want to just view this as our own, like we need to do this because it'll make us feel better. It's actually one of the handful of uh, federal programs that we ha that we have that uh, makes a material difference in the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. So for us to not offer this to people who are U.S. citizens, many of whose family members are in line right now to come to the U.S., and for us to destroy this program is really, it, it's just a very clear example of cruelty. I think sometimes each uh, we get into these polarized arguments in which we say, well, both sides are just as bad. And this is a very clear example. Neither this, For me, this is a nonpartisan book. There has never been a moment in history in which any president has ever um, actively gone against refugee resettlement in these very direct and targeted ways. And so for me, it's important for us to read it because of what's at stake for refugee resettlement, but mostly because Munah and Hasna and tens of thousands of other people 
are real people. These aren't policies. This isn't a political game and we're not trying to score points. These are people whose lives have been disrupted, who are not able to be with their families. You know, even just listening to you guys talk about Thanksgiving and food and being together. So much of my interviews took place over food with kids running around or in Hasna's case in particular, as she showed me pictures and we talked to her family on WhatsApp and just the grief of not being able to be with your family is something I, I just, I think it's so critically important that we in the U.S. get to the point where we stop viewing people through whatever stereotypical lens we've had and start recognizing victims of war and persecution, no matter where they come from, deserve to be safe. And that's why we, that's why I'm really hoping people can connect with Hazna and Muna's story and really fall in love with them like I have. Mm -hmm. Yes. No, I mean, I read it and I felt I mean, you have really written it so well because it felt like as if these women had written the story themselves and you had gotten the, um, I mean, that really shows uh, the power of your writing, but at the same time, you were able to really portray how they felt and how, and both of them were so different. I mean, yeah. it was really felt like each, it was from the point of view of each one of them. And I really enjoyed that part. So I'm wondering if from your own personal experience, do you feel that people are becoming more attuned to, you know, the refugee issues and trying to help out and you see any, you know, activism around? I know for sure you're involved, but just in general, do you feel that people are becoming more cool about it or more impassioned regarding this issue? I have so much hope around this and it has been really surprising to me actually to feel it. So I worked on a piece that ended up being um, not being published because this has just been such a chaotic time in which I interviewed people. I just kind of put out a call who feels like the, what has happened to refugee resettlement is changing your vote. And I basically wanted to find people who had always voted for Republicans and ended up um, really changing their mind based on not, I mean, it ended up being about resettlement, but also like what is happening in terms of the immigration, the anti-immigration policies. And I I could not possibly keep up with the responses. And I found it really heartening to read the stories of so many people who said, I didn't know. And now I've learned. And now that I know I can never go back to a time in which I view children at the border or refugees um, as or asylum seekers or others who are vulnerable, caught up in these policies as if they're just you know, numbers and not actually people. And so I have a lot of hope that things are about to shift in this um, presidential election, but also it does, it's not just about one president. We really need this to be something that happens across the board. And I have seen so many movements um, politically and governor races and conversations and which people are really just beginning to recognize, recognize and understand what happens when we use this kind of deep racism as a way to view other people. And I really am feeling hopeful that the anti-racist work of the summer and the pandemic, which has shown all of us that we're vulnerable and that times are complicated, that it is awakening some kind of empathy in the in the minds of many people in the United States. And I think that hope is really carrying me forward even when things often feel chaotic. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you feel that way. And it's really, that's why I mean today it's so, so important. And I hope that everyone uh, really makes the effort to cast their vote because it's not just our lives that really matter, it's mm -hmm. everyone else's that are uh, in these tough situations. So you are, uh, you're a co-founder of, uh, of Hill Tribers. It's mm -hmm. a nonprofit. Can you explain for, uh, for people who are interested in, in helping refugees, what would be the easiest or probably the best way for someone 
to help out or to you know uh, help out the, the refugee program mm -hmm. to help refugees or how to go about if you just want to help as an individual volunteer or do something like you found something yeah found an organization so i will say the best way to do this is going to depend on what's happening around you locally so my answer is always to find out Re refugee resettlement is in many ways an international program but it's also a hyper local program so what's happening in austin is very different from what's happening in seattle or what's happening in new york and so um local reset re uh, local resettlement agencies have never needed help more they've never needed financial help more many of them have a lot of virtual opportunities to tutor students and so going to literally googling your city and resettlement i guarantee you can find something nearby that you can help with for me the nonprofit began when i first met muna so i was there as a community volunteer i did not have time for it this was not something that i went in seeking out um, i was a phd student with a young child at home and um, ended up falling in love with a group of people and realized that they were um, weavers. And so Muna connected us, me with several of her neighbors. And over time, uh, some friends of mine and I ended up co-founding this nonprofit in which we taught English to them. We got some yarn and helped them make the, the typical weaving things that they've done. They made bags and scarves and several different things, and then we would help sell them. And so we did that for seven years. And we finally finished successfully when the last two artisans got full-time jobs. We always viewed that as something that we were going to do as kind of a Band-Aid solution for this particular group of mostly women. There was one man that we worked with. And then um, when it was finished, I thought that was it. And those were good friendships I would have for life. And I had no idea that I would end up writing about them. It was only when the rhetoric shifted in about 2015 that I ended up leaving my academic career for a writing one in order to write this book and others. Oh, you, you said you left your academic career to write this book? So, oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was, I was running a writing center at the time and just felt like there was oh, no God. way that I could um, stay in that job when I had the chance to do something like that. Yeah. Um, so that really takes me to my next question, which is, yeah. um, do you have any other writing projects coming up? And, you know, if you do, are they related to refugee activism? Is it really another topic, very different? Yeah, so I can't really talk about the specifics of it, but I am okay. working on my second book. And it's really okay. asking, it's a lot of questions that were kind of left out. And so I'll, I won't give you the, the like all the, the details about it, but I will say that one of the things that I was most concerned about in writing this book is how often I had to leave out other groups of people. People that come to the United States through refugee resettlement have proven that they went through war and persecution. It's a very well vetted program. And there are a lot of deserving people who don't come to the United States. And we tell a lot of stories about those people, who they are, why they're not deserving, why we kind of separate out people who are former refugees from other people who are immigrants. And as the you know, descendant of immigrants, I wanted to interrogate those stories. What what has given people who look like me the 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 feeling that they can say or get tell these kinds of stereotypical stories about others and so that's really where that the next book began and i hope to get started writing it in the next little bit we're currently shopping it so okay that's really amazing we're looking forward to that too yeah thanks me yes. too okay so i was okay. trying to um, to experiment do you hear me 
Can you hear me? Okay, there you yes. go. I was trying mm -hmm. to experiment something, but it didn't work out. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so stay tuned, please. You are watching to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. Martin and I decided we do this program uh, differently, and it's going just well. I am so pleased to be on the backstage listening to the great conversation and listening to Jessica Goudeau, author of After the Last Border, families and the story of refugee refuge in america today's election day many of us perhaps do not grip this important notion that for better or for worse whoever goes to the white house probably decides for the rest of us and probably for the whole world what's happened in the united states matters of the policy making for the rest of the world and we just need to put someone who understands the responsibility that this nation has given to him and i'm hoping that uh, we give this responsibility to a person who can manage himself in the White House, inshallah. So uh, please do not forget to check the uh, book on our website, goldtoon.com. It's the website Mateen and I manage with the group of uh, international foreign correspondents. And then the book is available on, on the website. You can buy it uh, through us and help our peace initiative. The book also available in many other online stores and you can find the book really really easy it's a good read it's a powerful writing scripture and and i truly mateen read it i read it and we truly recommend the book for whoever really takes uh, the united states uh, serious and the people who are less privileged and truly need our help serious and here yes the program is about kindness peace compassion and we are so pleased to talk with a peaceful bridge makers so here is Martin. yes as we mentioned at the end of each program we ask our guests to share a story a meaningful story to them or a statement on peace about kindness or compassion so uh jessica um it's your turn go ahead yeah, you know, the story that comes to mind immediately is the interview process with Hazma and Amina, who is the translator for our book. And again, both of those are pseudonyms. Um, Amina has been in the United States for a few decades, and Hazma has been here. She just came in 2016. And together, the three of us spent every two weeks, over two years, working on this, this story. Hazna would tell her story, Amina would translate, I would ask questions, and it, it was just like the way that women talk around the table and the, our questions would interrupt each other and we spoke fast and almost always we took turns hosting it and so it always happened over our kitchen tables and I grew to love, I mean I already love Syrian food the minute I began to eat it, but so many dishes that stand out to me like Megdus, which was homemade, handmade with so much love and you know, um, Hasna would make those just incredible feasts for me. And when I think of peace, it's not coming to Hasna as a refugee or coming to Hasna as a Syrian, but coming to Hasna as a friend and um, enjoying cooking for one another and enjoying sharing each other's food. And I think that's such a universal human experience. And it's something that all of us deserve. We deserve to be with friends and loved ones on special days and on every day. 
And so that's really why I'm hoping people who have the chance to vote and who can really do something about this, who may not feel like this election matters to them, if the election doesn't matter to you, then please make sure that you're doing this on behalf of so many people like Hazma and others for whom this election really is going to change the fate of their lives and their families. Yes, yeah. inshallah. Inshallah. Very good. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jessica. We really appreciate you. And thanks to everyone for listening. You guys, this was so rich. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Khoda hafiz. Khoda hafiz.